0: good morning again we'll look at luke 15 this morning um familiar passage one of my favorites you know there's an awful lot wrong with our world that can make us lose our comfort and joy you know what's the one thing that gives our heavenly father the greatest joy what do you think the one thing that makes him the happiest gives him the greatest joy well, three times in Luke 15 we see the answer in verse 7, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. That's Jesus' parable of the lost sheep. And in verse 10, I tell you there's more joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. That's the parable of the lost coin. And we see in verse 23, bring the fatted calf and let us kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again he was lost and is found so luke records these three interrelated parables of jesus and the theme in all three of them is the gracious father's joy over bringing sinners back into relationship with him one lost sheep one lost coin and one lost son actually two sons who needed intimacy with the father restored so Let's read this familiar passage to us. And for context, we'll read the first couple of verses of Luke 15, then we'll pick up at verse 11. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. In verse 11, uh, he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for drawing us again into your presence because you love us and you have embraced us and you continue uh, to embrace us as your children and honor us and kiss us. And uh, this is our comfort, as the psalmist says, in all kinds of sufferings, that your promise gives us life. So we pray for, for more of that uh, life-giving gospel message to our hearts today. We take uh, comfort in the story of the gospel and in the suffering that our Lord Jesus went through so that we might enjoy, we might have comfort and joy forever uh, with no sin or no sadness. So we ask you by your Holy Spirit to move in our hearts and our minds and our church. For Christ's sake we pray, amen. Amen. And you can be seated. So I hope you had some time over the holiday to list the blessings of God that you're especially thankful for. We had a a great one-hour service on Thanksgiving Day here with encouraging testimonies about God's goodness to us. We could have gone on for a couple of hours, I think. Uh, It was really a blessing. There were testimonies of real difficulty and pain and trouble that God has allowed into our lives. But each person expressed faith in, in God's promises, in his providence, his good providence of blessing, even in the midst of suffering loss. And one of the things I remember Javier sharing was a reminder that the gospel is not good advice to try to follow, but it's good news to believe by faith he reminded us that you know we go to experts for good advice so that we can do something with that advice but we go to the gospel for good news to rejoice in what's already been done we rejoice in the fact that Jesus has already accomplished the work for us and we don't have to strive to to uh be accepted by God to be loved by him I love this parable the most because it so clearly takes us to the good news of what someone has already done, that our our inheritance is guaranteed, as the gracious father says to his older son in, in treating him and trying to bring him back into intimate relationship with him in the home. He says, all that belongs to the father is yours. And that's what God says to us, right? All that belongs to the father, all that belongs to Christ is yours already because of what he has accomplished because he said it's finished in, in good times or in bad the thing that you and I need the most is the good news of our father's loving embrace if we're in Christ uh, this parable really is a picture of what the heavenly father has done to embrace you to honor you and kiss you and to declare that you are not a slave you're not a servant you are a son or a daughter and the father delights in our repentance. He delights in our coming with a broken and a contrite heart. The father in Jesus' parable was just as concerned with the spiritual health of the older son as he was with the younger prodigal son because he wanted much more than just outward conformity. We, we refer to this as the, the parable of the prodigal son, but Jesus starts out, there was a man who had two sons. So it's just as much about uh, Jesus trying to Uh, communicates something of the difference between where these two sons were, what was going on in their hearts. Uh, In David's personal confession of adultery and murder in Psalm 51, you remember he speaks to the kind of heart-level response that God desires for us. He says, "You you desire truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And he says, the the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. In fact, he's not just not despised, but he takes great delight. He he takes great joy when one sinner repents. The repentance, the response that God delights in is, is one from a humble, broken heart over your sin and your remaining corruption. The conflict for the Pharisees and the scribes, they were, you know, they were offended by Jesus because he was mixing and mingling with sinners. He was eating with them. Uh, But their problem was what was on the inside, that they they were spiritually unhealthy. They thought Jesus was unhealthy, but spiritually they they were unhealthy uh, because they didn't understand what Jesus had come to do. Instead of having contrite hearts, their hearts were filled with pride, and the danger of pride is it will always lead us to be concerned with surface things, right? Overlook the deeper examination of our hearts. Our pride leads us to, to create idols, substitute saviors. John Calvin talks about the heart as, as a factory that continually produces idols. So each one of us, our hearts Uh, have the ability to create a new one every day that surprises you, you know, you didn't didn't know you could worship that idol. Uh, Ken Sandy and other writers, they point out the typical progression of an idol uh, that uh, we're often tempted to substitute in place of God. So it starts with, I desire something. Sometimes it's a good thing that I desire that moves to I demand, uh, moves on to I judge, and then I punish. So the progression of, of an idol. I desire, I demand, I judge, I punish. And you can follow the progression with the religious leaders who scorned Jesus because the, the Pharisees and the scribes, they had expe- expectations of a teacher, what a good teacher was supposed to be like. And they, they desired a teacher that was, that was more like them. They demanded that he meet their expectations. And in their disappointment... Uh, They judged him, their jealousy, and ultimately what did they do? They conspired to punish him, to kill him, to take his life, to destroy him. I think we see the same progression of an idol in in cancel culture today. Someone desires something, can be a good thing, but the sign that it's become a substitute deity is when the desire becomes a demand. I demand, I judge, and ultimately I cancel or I punish you. You know, we know there's, there's only one person in the universe who has the righteous authority to cancel someone. He's the only one who has every right to demand worship from every creature. He's the only one with the rightful authority to judge men and women, and ultimately to bring just punishment to those who reject his mercy, right? The only one who can uh, condemn, who can um, who has the righteous authority. His, his self-exaltation is the highest virtue, as John Piper likes to put it, because he knows there's nothing more life-giving, there's nothing more rewarding, there's nothing that brings more comfort and joy than your worship of him alone. So it's right for him to say, worship me and none other. The problem for fallen humans is that our hearts deceive us into chasing after all kinds of substitutes that try to function like a savior the younger brother he was chasing those substitutes the older brother he had some substitutes as well Uh, we remember what the prophet jeremiah says in 17 chapter 17 verse 9 he says the heart is deceitful and beyond all cure can anyone fully grasp he asked the question can anyone fully grasp the underlying motives of his own heart I have a new friend who is currently incarcerated at the Walker State Prison and I meet with him on the first and third Monday evenings. Dana Emborski and I travel together uh, down to the, the, the prison in just across the border in Georgia and there's about 13 or 14 of us uh, that, that in two teams that meet with inmates around tables in a cafeteria area of the prison. And my friend and I have met over the last couple of months, and we're getting to know each other better. Um, I've come to see that he has a lot of zeal, but he hasn't been exposed that much to the truth of the gospel. So he struggles with the truth that we're sinners and saints simultaneously, that we still live in this tension of those two realities of being a sinner and a saint without hypocrisy, but with faith. And he's read some things and has been led to believe that you, you have to be either one or the other. You can't be both. And this past Monday, uh, we spent some time together looking at Scripture, and I showed him this statement in Jeremiah. You know, the heart is deceitful and beyond all cure. And I asked him, whose heart is that talking about? You know, who's is, who is Jeremiah referring to? And he he admits that he still falls short of God's Commands. He sort of lived uh, the way of the younger brother in his life, and it's resulted in a long prison sentence. Uh, but unfortunately, he he's trying to live the life of the older brother now. You know, he's he's trying to to, to uh, please God through his good works and and through his efforts. Um, Pray for me and for Dana and for all these other men and pray for more men who, who want to mentor uh, some of these men who have asked for mentoring. You know, pray that I can communicate well the fact that God provides in the gospel everything that he requires in the law. Pray that we'll come, you know, he'll come to see that God is most concerned with the spiritual health, with the inward being and the brokenness and the humility that we should have at the heart level first which itself will uh, result in change in behavior uh, in outward performance. When we understand the problem we have with our own heart, then we'll be better equipped to help another person with their heart. And our sin is so much more than surface behavior, right? It's rooted in our hearts, our will, our attitudes, our desires, our motivations, as well as our actions. And James applies this truth to conflicts that we often get into with family members, spouses, co-workers, with other church members. Maybe you had one around the Thanksgiving table. Did you get into some conflict? You know, that's they warn against that. Don't talk about certain things at the, the dinner table because our hearts are prone to uh, hold tightly onto some opinion that we have about something. And uh, and to demand that other people uh, hold the same opinion. Uh, James speaks to our struggle with being lured away by substitutes, and and he calls us, you adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Ouch, he says, you adulterous people. He asks us in chapter 4, what causes quarrels and fights and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you, You desire and do not have, so you murder. Remember, murder in our hearts counts as murder. He says, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. So he calls us to pray, to ask God for uh, the things that we want, to to pray for one another, to pray for ourselves, to pray for our own hearts. Uh, James is reminding us that we all have root sins and fruit sins. You know the difference? Root sins and fruit sins. The fruit sins we see on the surface, like like quarreling or gossip or worse, and we need to repent and turn away from those sins. And those sins are like the, the shark's fin, you know, in the water. If you've ever been swimming or surfing and a shark, you see a shark's fin, you know what happens on the beach, right? Uh, people get as far away as they can from, from that fin as fast as they can. Uh, but the root sins are like the body of the shark that you may not see below the surface, much more dangerous than the fin. And James calls them passions that are at war within us. Uh, this, this war that's always going on between the flesh and the spirit in us. If you only try to deal with your surface sins and neglect the fa- to faithfully search out your heart for the root sins, then you're kind of like the, the swimmer who is batting against the fin to try to attack the shark, you know. Um, we see how God's concern with what's going up at, at the heart level applies to our conflicts. Um, let's try to apply it to parenting as another example. So I read something this week by jo- Josiah Bancroft who is one of the leaders of Surge Mission that was helpful in applying it to myself as, as a parent. Um, I still, I got some grown kids, but I'm still a parent, so I'm, you know, I'm, I still got a responsibility as a dad to kind of uh, help them uh, along the way to try to apply the gospel to their conflicts, to their trouble, their issues, and it's helpful for me to remember in parenting that because we still live in an imperfect world, and as a parent, I'm not perfect myself, Everything I do and everything my children do is somewhat tainted with rebellion because of the fall, because of our condition, our disposition to sin. But as a Christian parent, the good news is everything I do is also washed in Christ's blood. And I must watch my heart and be concerned with my children's hearts. And I mustn't make peace with sin. I must remember who I am and not be discouraged by the struggle and the sin in the world, and Satan's craftiness as the chief liar that's seeking to deceive me and deceive my kids. You know, I must remind them that they are ultimately defined by their relationship to Jesus, not by the perfection of their lives. They're never gonna attain perfection. They're always gonna have this remaining corruption in this life. And as I re- regularly remind myself and my kids of our, our gospel identity, then as I receive by faith the truth of who I am in Christ and see the present value of his blood and righteousness, then I'm able to operate in this tension. There's a real tension between being a sinner and a saint. And I'm able to stand in the tension between simultaneously being, um, having remaining corruption and a saint uh, declared by God to be holy and perfect and righteous in his sight, completely accepted by him. I can live in that tension without hypocrisy, but with faith. You know, none of us wants our children to become like the younger brother, right? Nor do we want our children to become like the elder brother, That just this outward performance. Looks good on the outside, successful, faithful, loyal, uh, but on the inside, ooh, a lot of you know, he gets left outside. The relationship with the Father is is broken. Um, doesn't love mercy and grace. Uh, you know, we just want our kids to, to experience a growing intimacy with the Father through faith in Christ. That they they come to have their own relationship with him that's growing because of their, their identity is in the gospel. If you're in Christ, you know, this parable is a picture of, of what the Heavenly Father has done to embrace you and to kiss you and to honor you as a son or a daughter and not to treat you as a hired servant. And he delights in repentance. He delights in a broken and a contrite heart. God is not so much concerned with outward conformity. With mere outward conformity, he's not concerned at all. He He, he would, would resist that if that's all it was. It wasn't coming from a heart that is... Changed because of his embrace. Uh, remember the question we started out with: right? You know, what is the one thing that makes our heavenly Father most happy? That gives him the greatest joy. And in this parable, Jesus is teaching us that it—it's when we sinners repent, and we—you we, know—we know that our need for repentance doesn't just end at conversion. That repentance is a one-time thing for us, but it's an ongoing uh, throughout our life. God rejoices to see sinners who who live this lifestyle of repentance and faith. Uh, This is a a cyclical pattern for us. Uh, Repentance, renewed faith, new obedience. Repentance, renewed faith, new obedience. It's this pattern for living and growing in the Christian life. Repent, believe, obey. Repent, believe, obey when we're walking with the Holy Spirit and, and he whispers to us, you know, I know this has happened to you. A thought comes to you that's not from your flesh, but it's got to be from the Spirit. And he says, uh, remember what you said, that angry word that you said to your spouse or to your child. Uh, do you think that was the right way to respond? And you go, oh, man, I wish I could take that back. I wish I could, you know, go back and change that. I need to repent. Right, that's the work of the Holy Spirit, or that that thought. You know, the the Holy Spirit just comes to you uh, and says, "Oh, that thought that you just had. You know, that impure thought. Uh, do you think that is honoring to the Lord?" And and you go, "Oh, uh, I I repent. I I believe again the gospel that is for me. I will seek new obedience." Uh, you know, that's that's. The spirit-filled life, right? That's the—that's this battle between the flesh and the spirit. That we—if you have the Holy Spirit in you, you're going to have those experiences more and more, where you know that you are convicted by the Holy Spirit. And we should say yes, thank you. It should be a joyful thing that we say thank you, Father, for the grace, for the for your mercy, because repentance is a gift from you that you have given to me. And so, thank you. I I I joyfully and freely repent confession and sin and assurance of pardon is not just for the third Sunday of the month before communion right it's it's to be every Sunday every day it's to be a lifestyle we must remind ourselves uh, that our sin nature will not be eradicated in this life you know, even though we've been born again and we're new creatures in Christ and the, the completion of our salvation is 100% guaranteed by God, you know, during our remaining days in this life, we are truly at the same time both justified and sinners. You know, Martin Luther talked about this and he, there's this well-known phrase uh, in Latin that Martin Luther coined, simul justice et peccator, It describes the condition of every Christian uh, as both sinner, saint, and justified sinner, uh, both together until we're released from this remaining sin at the point of death. No one wants to die. Uh, But the best thing about death is going to be that your lifelong battle with sin and remaining corruption is over. That's going to be the most glorious thing for you that you no longer have this weight there's no longer this struggle this battle between the flesh and the spirit hallelujah so the younger son by god's grace he came to his senses and he repented he humbled himself and turned away from his sin the older son could couldn't see his sin he had a hard time seeing beneath the surface he remained angry and distant separated himself from the gracious father he was not a fan of mercy and grace and of loving kindness. And he scorned the younger brother and he was angry with the gracious father. And in the parable, he reveals what was truly in his heart. Look, father, these many years I've served you, literally I've slaved for you and I never disobeyed your command. He thought more highly of himself than than he should have, right? Uh, this brother was... He was the poorer of the two because he was depending on the wrong thing for his identity. He was missing the gospel. And like the Pharisees and the scribes, he was too proud of what he had accomplished to see his sin and to be able to show mercy to other sinners. God rejoices over the rebellious who turn back to him in faith, and he loves to give grace to the humble. But the proud, we know he resists, right? Unfortunately, the proud usually end up outside because they're unwilling to uh, recognize their sin. Because Jesus has paid the full penalty for our sins, God the Father, uh, he doesn't need you to pay for yours. He doesn't need you to pay for your sin. There may be natural consequences for your sin, but those consequences are not payment. You can't pay God back for Uh, your sin against him. God doesn't need you to bargain with him, that if uh, he just lets you be a servant in the house, you'd be loyal to him. No, he asks you to receive his forgiveness by faith every day in the work that what he has already done, what he's accomplished, the inheritance that he has available to us, um, only because of his work Christian life doesn't involve your paying for your sin, but it does require ongoing repentance for sin with a broken and contrite heart. We don't just uh, live any way that we please, taking for granted God's grace that is shown to us, because his grace is shown to us every single day. If you have faith, that's a gift of God. If your faith is increasing, if you ever repent, that's a gift of God, that he's pouring out his grace to you. And so that should Make us uh, come with a broken and contrite heart to want to repent, to want to draw closer to Him. Martin Luther, in 1517, when he nailed his 95 theses on the cathedral door in Wittenberg, he started off with, with his first thesis. You remember, it says, "When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, He willed the entire life of be- the entire life of believers to be one of repentance." That was the very first statement that he wanted everybody to know. He wanted uh, the leaders in the, the Roman church to start off with that, that their lives should be one of ongoing repentance. Forty years later, uh, John Calvin, you know, he began to explain the doctrines of the Protestant Reformed faith more systematically, and he wrote the Institutes of Christian Religion, and, um, he wrote that God assigns to each of us a race of repentance to run during our whole life. So it's like this, this marathon that we are all in. And it's really a marathon of repentance. That our whole lives we are running this race of repentance. Thomas Watson, he wrote a classic in 1668, The Doctrine of Repentance, where he talks about our need for repentance as a continuous act that must not be stopped until death. And Watson says that the two great graces essential to a saint in this life are faith and repentance. They're they're the two wings by which we fly to heaven. Faith and repentance. So don't try to fly with just one wing. He says both are, are important faith and ongoing repentance. We also see this understanding of lifestyle repentance and faith in the writing of John Wesley. Another example from one of our contemporary theologians, Michael Horton, he speaks of repentance as a perpetual cycle that defines the Christian life. Another contemporary theologian, uh, Wayne Grudem, he writes, it's important to realize that faith and repentance are not confined to the beginning of the Christian life. They're rather attitudes of the heart that continue throughout our lives as Christians. And finally, John Murray he makes the case that just as faith is constant throughout the Christian life, so is repentance. He, he describes them as uh, two sides of the same coin, faith and repentance. And he says the broken spirit and contrite heart are abiding marks of the believing soul. He, he says Christ's blood is the bowl of initial cleansing, but it's also the fountain to which the believer must continually go for repair. So the blood of christ we know that cleanses us from sins right it's this ongoing he describes it as this this fountain that is needed to to go back to on a regular basis uh, when our family lived in jamaica our mission had a building project at a church up in the cool hills of manchester uh, that i would help with and it was a basic school that this church was building a building uh, kind of like we have done here with a school uh, they, a lot of churches in Jamaica will will have a, a basic school for three, four, and five-year-olds in their building. And we were helping with that. And I'd go up there sometimes for a week with a team before a um, uh, you know, team would come from the United States. And uh, before leaving, every time, there was this dear woman, Mrs. Palmer, who is a praying saint if there ever was one. She would want to walk around my car And she would pray the blood of Jesus over my car. You know, there's bad accidents in Jamaica, like there are here. But, you know, accidents that you you don't know how something could happen as terrible as that. But she would go around the car and she'd say, the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus. No no weapon that's formed against you can prosper, Pastor Billy. Um, You know, if I were John Murray or Michael Horton or Martin Luther, I would likely have said to her, Mrs. Palmer, come. Pray that over me because I need the blood of Jesus, right? I need the blood of Jesus to be prayed over me on a regular basis because I need repentance and I need greater faith to trust him. You know, when you know that the Heavenly Father embraces you as his son or daughter, you know, one of the ways you embrace him back is with a contrite, a broken and a contrite heart each day in faith. And there's great joy in heaven when one sinner repents and believes the gospel again and again and again. And we tend to think of that as when someone gets saved, gloriously saved, that, you know, the angels and the Lord, uh, they're doing high fives and they're running around heaven, kind of like the, when, when if you watch any of the World Cup uh, soccer, you know, what happens, you know, after the 75th minute, the first goal is scored and just, you know, pandemonium erupts. You know, maybe that's what it is in heaven when, when, sinners repent. But I don't think he's just talking about at conversion because repentance is an ongoing, there's delight and joy in heaven when we come to our senses in an ongoing way and we repent of our sins. Great joy when one sinner repents and believes the gospel again and again and again. You know, We live in this biblical tension of being sinners in need of a Savior every single day and at the, the same time, we're glorious saints declared to be forever righteous in Christ. And there's no hypocrisy. We don't live in this tension with hypocrisy, but it's, it's with faith because this is what God has said. This is God's word uh, to us. Our true identity is both sinner and saint at the same time. So it, it should keep us humble and dependent with a brokenness over our sin like the sinful woman who wept at Jesus' feet, right? Not like the proud Pharisees and the scribes who grumbled against Jesus, who judged him because of some of his behavior. Um, So what do we do with all of this uh, this tension? Well, we need to be more self-aware, right, of our own hearts, need for repentance and faith, to believe who we are in Christ. We need to practice more of a, a contemplative Type Christian life. We need to be more compassionate toward younger brothers and older brothers and more like the gracious Father, longing for their return. We need to guard our own hearts against the subtle sins of pride and judgmentalism of others. We need to develop a posture of coming alongside sinners rather than kind of a top down posture like the Pharisees had. We need to recognize our own brokenness. Uh, We need to see in Christ our perfect older brother and his way of welcoming sinners into fellowship with radical, extravagant grace. We need to consider the worst sinner we know. Think about the worst sinner that you know. We need to think of that person as better than ourselves. We need to remember that no sinner is beyond God's gracious offer of forgiveness. Amen? Because you weren't beyond his gracious offer, if you have put your trust and faith in him. Uh, so where are you finding it hard to show mercy? Where are you finding it hard to show grace to another person? You know, where are you judging someone because they've not lived up to your standards? Maybe at your workplace, maybe in your family, maybe with your kids, or maybe it's with a parent. Or maybe it's in your church, you know, where, where do you want to see God bring justice to sinners. You know, when we keep coming back to to the Jesus lens through which we should see our lives and our challenges and through which we should see all other people, it's the gospel that motivates us to not lose heart when we understand our own identity and the identity of everyone else uh, in Christ. And of course, it's also the gospel that gives us the power To move out in love for our children, for our spouse, for our neighbor, our fellow church members, our fellow Americans that make us so angry, Uh, whoever it may be, it's the power of the gospel. What did Paul say about the gospel in Romans 1, verse 16? He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's the power for us, not just at conversion, but as we go through the Christian life. The gospel is the power to help us to repent and believe, to trust God, to repent, believe, obey. Repent, believe, obey. So you believe the gospel. Keep believing it. Keep rejoicing in it. Keep repenting and believing again the good news. Keep applying it to every nook and cranny of your complicated life. Apply the gospel to everything. Uh, Keep living by... You know, stop living by the law of merit and live by the law of grace. That's the gospel, is the the living by the law of grace. Keep coming back to the recklessly extravagant grace of your heavenly Father. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this familiar parable. Thank you, uh, Lord Jesus, for making the gospel so clear to us in stories, uh, in parables like like these in Luke 15. Uh, We know that we need your grace every day to turn away from the sins of commission and the sins of omission that we are guilty of. Help us uh, to repent and believe the truths of the gospel moment by moment, day by day, throughout the rest of our lives for the joy of the Lord. And we give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen.